0: Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club.
1: Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, chair of the Humanities Forum. I'd like to welcome our audience live here in San Francisco and our radio and online audiences. It's my great pleasure to introduce a panel of speakers related to Lincoln Mitchell's book, The Year That Was, 1978 and the Making of Contemporary San Francisco. So Lincoln Mitchell, the author. Is an Arnold Saltzman Institute of War and Peace Studies at Columbia University. We also have Art Agnos, who was a member of the California State Assembly from seventy-seven to eighty-seven, and the mayor of San Francisco from eighty-eight to ninety-one. We have Corey Bush, who used to be the former press secretary to Mayor George Moscone, as seventy-six to seventy-eight, and he's also been a senior executive at the San Francisco Giants, as we all know, from seventy-nine to ninety-two. We have Louise Rene, member of the San Francisco Board of Supervisors from seventy-eight to eighty-six and the San Francisco city attorney from 86 to 2001 and Louise told me I don't know why I'm here I just got started in 1978 <laughs> so but she's she's here because you know that's the fresh look at 1978 she had she had the, the brand new look of it and then we have Alvin Orloff songwriter for Jennifer and the Blow Dryers and author Disaster-rama Adventures in the Queer Underground, 1977 to 1997. So a cross-spectrum of the of the year and the perspectives on it. Lincoln, thanks a lot for coming and bringing your, your panel. Well, thank you for, for having me. It's very great to be back here at the Commonwealth Club, and I look forward
2: to this uh, panel. Before we get started, I just want to recognize a couple people in the crowd. Congressman George Miller is here. Thank mm-hmm. you for, for joining us. Uh, Bob Lurie. Uh, Bob Lurie, uh, without whom we really would not be having this conversation because the Giants would be playing in Toronto. (laughs) (laughs) And my mother, without whom we really wouldn't be having (laughs) (laughs) this conversation. I want to get to the panel because I know that's why many of you are here, but I just want to make some brief opening remarks about this book. So while I was doing my research for this book, I I decided to interview a very smart and well-respected San Francisco politician who had been there at this time because I wanted his input. And we spent about an hour chatting with each other. And for the sake of argument, we'll call him Art Agnos. And and after our our meeting, it was a very good meeting, very helpful for me, we we stood up, shook hands, said goodbye. And he said, Lincoln, you're writing a weird book. And um, (laughs) he stands by that assessment. But I think it's more than just a weird book. And I want to kind of answer a little bit of why it's more than just a weird book. There are kind of three questions that people ask me about this book as I was writing it and, and since I've written it. People say, I understand the politics, the assassinations, even if they know San Francisco and California history, Prop 6 and Prop 13 that year was very important, uh, Jonestown, but but why baseball? And, And there's a couple of answers to that. One is, the main one is that for me as a young person in 1978, I cannot think of that year without thinking about that exciting Giants team. It was an important team. This was the first good team of the post Willie Mays era. The 1978 Giants drew more fans than any team in franchise history, going back to when they were playing in New York in the 19th century, except for in 1960, which was the first year of Candlestick Park. And by doing that, they institutionalized themselves in San Francisco and showed that the team could succeed in San Francisco even without the greatest player of the post-war era. So... Baseball, for me, is the central part. If the year had ended on October 31st, rather than December 31st, we'd be in a very different San Francisco today, but it would have been remembered as the year of the Giants. The second uh, question people ask me is, why punk rock? Um, and, 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 but that's an important question, and it deserves an important answer. And part of the uh, the answer to that is that Many of you are are longtime San Franciscans, and I haven't met anyone in recent years who said what we really need is another book about the summer of love. Um, So I wanted to break away from that a little bit, and I wanted to tell a story about what I think was an important musical, cultural, and indeed political movement in San Francisco, and that was the punk rock movement. And punk in San Francisco was different than in other cities in America because it was more explicitly political. Because in early 1978 at the MAB there's a fundraiser for striking coal workers in Appalachia, right? Nothing to do with San Francisco. You didn't see that in other cities. There were no other cities in America where elected officials went to the most important punk club to MC a fundraiser for an issue they cared about. But Harvey Milk did MC an event at the MAB for No on Proposition Six, right? Which does any, I assume we all know what proposition Proposition Six was an initiative to make it, which would have made it legal to fire any teacher in the state of California, who was gay or suspected of being gay. You can imagine what this meant for the LGBT community then and for progressive Californians. The initiative was defeated, not least because this county, San Francisco, went against it at the higher margin of any county in the state, and the punks wanted to go no on six against this homophobic initiative, and Harvey Milk was part of that. So that's why I think the punk story. And then a year later, when, as the, the tragic events happened, Diane Feinstein, seeking a full term of her own, is challenged on the right by Quentin Cobb, and really on the left, only by Jello Biafra, right, who was the, the lead singer for the Dead Kennedys. And if you go back and read his campaign platform, or better yet, read my book, because it's quoted in there, <laughs> some of this is, some of what he says is goofy, right? We should build statues of Dan White and then charge for eggs and tomatoes for people to throw at them to raise money, right? And some of them is not, right? Police officers should be from the communities they police. That's not a crazy idea, right? Bill de Blasio runs on something like that um, in, in New York City where I'm from. So and then the third piece is why this book? Why do we need another book about 1978? And that's why why I think what I want to get at in this panel today, which is the links between 1978 and today. If the politics had played out differently in 1978, San Francisco would be very, very different today. And to a great extent, the person who became mayor in 1978 after finishing third in the 75 election, uh, Dianne Feinstein, had an enormous imprint. She's been the longest, she served as mayor longer than anyone in the post-war era, and to a great extent, as I argue in the book, the San Francisco we know today is Diane Feinstein, San Francisco. So maybe I can turn to the, the panel, because you don't <laughs> want to just hear me talking. I'm going to start. We're going to move from left to, to, to right, because we have this right-wing mayor I'm sorry, uh, sitting next to me. <laughs> um, but um, Alvin. So so as a high school student in at this time in 1978, tell me a little bit about what impact the
3: assassinations had on you at the end of the year. You, how you kind of processed that, what was going on. Okay. Well, like everyone else, I was really shocked, but because I had just come out of the closet about a year earlier, I was 17 and come out at 16, I was also terrified and uh, full of despair. Um, you know, coming out back then meant, for, I think, all gay people that you, you know, were going to get screamed at on the street. And, you know, if you were in high school, it meant getting beat up a lot. So, um, you know, I felt very vulnerable just to begin with. And, um, but I think on, on top of that, I also felt hopeful because Prop Six had been defeated. And um, because Harvey Milkwood had been elected, I did also have, along with my vulnerability, I had uh, a feeling of of hope. And, the assassinations completely smashed that hope. Uh, I felt like, you know, no, th- things are not going to be as easy as I had anticipated. I'd sort of envisioned a, a march forward like the civil rights, you know, where there was just going to be gay rights. Um, oh, great. Thank you. Uh, you know, in in, v- in very short order. And it turned out that that was not going to be the case. And, and so, uh, <coughs> uh, you know, became kind of despondent about it. And I think that was... Pretty much throughout the gay community, there was a a real feeling of of hopelessness for a little while. And and then that turned into radicalization. I mean, uh, you know, I was a little bit of a drama queen as a high school student. So I said to decide, okay, if we're doomed, I'm going to be glamorously doomed. (laughs) I'm I'm just going to wear their scorn like a feathered boa and I'll show them who's boss. And so I, I, you know, I started raising my hand in every class and, you know, talking about homosexuality and just being kind of much more radical than I had been before that. Uh, the other thing the assassinations did was they really curtailed my social life because uh, as a teenager in the suburbs, there was there was almost no nothing gay to do in the suburbs. There was very little punk rock in the suburbs, <clears throat> I, you know, would come into the city uh, all the time, take these long bus rides into the East Bay Terminal and uh, go to the Mabuhay Gardens or the Stud Bar. And you know, I had to sneak in always because I was, you know, 17, four years shy of being 21. But uh, it wasn't that hard. You could get in sometimes. <laughs> After <laughs> Diane Feinstein became mayor, that was much less the case. She really instituted a crackdown on minors in places that served alcohol, which you know I was very much against at the time. Uh, and uh, the other thing is that she would just. Uh, she kind of wanted to shut down punk rock. And Lincoln's book discusses this beautifully. Um, you know, there was a crackdown. Uh, I was at the 330 Grove Gay Community Center, which I think was having all ages shows. And so I was at some punk show there. And the police came and, you know, shut it down, ostensibly on a noise complaint. But once we'd all filed outside the police, you know, uh, some guy in a police car told me, no, this is not on Mayor, Mayor Feinstein's orders. This came directly from the mayor's office. So I think we knew that the city was changing. Um, we knew that Diane Feinstein had it in for punk rock for some reason. I don't think any of us knew, you know, quite the extent of the way she was going to remake city politics. But uh, we were politically engaged, if not savvy. And um, you know, that that was kind of a, a wake up call when that happened. Anyways, thank you. And um, Louise, moving from from left to right here. So one of the themes of the
2: book. Is the relationship between the San Francisco of 1978 and t- today? So this this year is is important. How do you see that relationship, and do you think there is a connection?
0: Well, as mentioned at the outset, I was not involved in San Francisco politics at all uh, before I became a member of the Board of Supervisors. In fact, I'd never even been in the Board of Supervisors chambers before I became. The supervisor. Uh, the reason being, I had been with the state attorney general's office, and I was always suing San Francisco. <laughs> uh, you might remember those twin high-rises that were planned on the top of Lombard Street. Well, I filed a lawsuit to stop those twin high-rises being built on the grounds that they hadn't done an environmental impact report, and they hadn't. And then, uh, 77, 78, I was president of California Women Lawyers, which had just been formed to get women on the courts and various occupations. That was a year when Rose, the first campaign against Rose Bird, was launched, and I ended up running that campaign statewide to retain Chief Justice Rose Byrd, and, and she did win that one, I'm happy to say. So— I was not involved in, in San Francisco politics, but what Diane Feinstein did was to ask the neighborhood groups and the business groups within then District 2 who they would recommend for supervisor, and they recommended me, and here I am, or was. So uh, uh, that isn't to say that I hadn't followed San Francisco politics because obviously both my husband and I had. Yeah. Um, 71. Yes, things changed in 78 in very definite ways, I'm sure. Frankly, I don't remember any crusade by Diane against punk rock, but you know that's what it is. Um, I do think that um, a lot of things changed, but not enough to say that what Diane or any subsequent mayor did is the result of San Francisco today. I think the problems of today could not have been anticipated back then. Take a look at the homeless problem. And that's not just a San Francisco problem, that's a national problem. Take a look at the traffic situation. Who could ever have imagined 40,000 Uber and Lyft cars per day in San Francisco? I don't think that could possibly have been anticipated in 78. So there have been uh, steps along the way that um, I I think uh, obviously led to these changes, but I think that it isn't any one mayor. I think some of the changes could have been stopped earlier on. Uh, It saddens me greatly that today... The neighborhoods are not strong. They are not. Where are the Sue Hesters? Where are the Calvin welshs? Where is a strong neighborhood council to stand up to the planning department? How long has it even been that there's been an activist in front of the planning department? How long has it been that there's anybody challenging what our transportation or traffic people doing? I don't know anybody. So I guess I have a slightly different take. Was Diane more conservative, middle of the road, than George Moscone? Uh, Maybe, although I will say um, she really went to bat on a lot of different ways on issues affecting the gay community. I remember to this day when Harry Britt and I went in to talk to Diane about the need to do something about the AIDS epidemic, and because of her medical background as well as her interest in in what would happen to people who were ill and dying, I think the rest is history that San Francisco General and all of San Francisco became in the forefront of the AIDS movement. So I think you can take a look at construction issues and maybe say one thing. I think on social issues, San Francisco, thank thank heaven, has always been on the forefront of social issues, and may it ever be thus, particularly in this day and age. So I guess I'll just sort of stop from for now. And <clears throat> just those are some of my off-the-cup Thank observations. Thank you. And, and I'll just say one other thing. <laughs> when I was first on the Board of Supervisors, the papers wrote that Supervisor Rennie did not say a word at her first meeting. <laughs> My dad reading the paper said that 's not going to last long
2: <laughs> um, I w- Thank you for your comments because I think you you capture i think in, in your comments the 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 kind of ha- the approach that Feinstein took, which was to take some from the prog- the social tolerance right which was I think Feinstein helped institutionalize here in San Francisco, as well as some of the more conservative planning and development. So I think there's the hybrid, which is one of the things I try to discuss in the book. So thank you for kind of spelling that out. Um, Corey, you're, you're kind of wearing two hats here today because I know that you were as close to Moscone really as anybody when he, when he was mayor. Um, and then you went to go work for the Giants. So I'm going to ask you briefly to wear your Giants hat <laughs> and, and tell a little about, about how you think the relationship was how 78 changed the relationship between the Giants and the city, and vice versa? That's a good
4: question. It, um, first of all, let me just say, for those of you who haven't read the book, it, it sounds kind of weird, but it's really a fascinating book. Uh, <laughs> now, it, it covers two of my passions baseball and politics. Um, and I guess most of my life, a lot of people referred to me as a punk, so maybe it fits there too. I don't know. <laughs> Um, but I really encourage you to read. It's really interesting, um, and, and the connection of baseball and politics and punk rock in um, 1978 to today is is pretty interesting. In terms of the Giants, I think um, in '78, a little context you know, the team had been in San Francisco less than 20 years <clears> when they were on the verge of leaving, um, and that was when Bob Lurie stepped forward and saved the team for San Francisco. And the team had been not particularly good on the field. They they were, they were good in the 60s. They finished second a lot in the 60s. Um, but through the 70s, they weren't. And going into 1978, I, the 70s up to that point were not a particularly great decade. Um, I mean, we had everything from Watergate and a president resigning uh, in San Francisco in 75. We had a police and fire strike and a very hotly contested and divisive Uh, race for mayor in 76 we had a a a city strike that lasted over two months that almost paralyzed the city Um, so there were a lot of things going on there was the energy crisis waiting in line to get gas which now that i live in moran i got to experience again (laughs) recently when uh when the power went out so uh, you know I, i don't know if people going into 1978 were you know really all that excited about things and all of us and there was there were a lot of issues facing San Francisco. And then all of a sudden the Giants, as Mitchell points out, trade for Vita Blue, who brings an energy and a personality to the team that was infectious. And the team just caught fire. And one of the things I think we all know and have learned over time is that there are two there are really two things that can bring a community together. One is tragedy. The murders at City Hall, for example, uh, brought this community together. And the other is sports. Um, Super Bowl parades, World Series parades, NBA parades. That really brings a community together. There's a commonality about it, and this is not a new phenomenon. Uh, This goes back centuries in almost any civilized culture. There are always places of public assembly to watch competition. So when the Giants got off to their great start, it was a great diversion. And I think for the first time since the 60s, since the Willie Mays era, when there was the newness that was then offset somewhat by Candlestick Park, uh, there was something for people to bond over. And the team just got more and more exciting. And even though a lot of people doubted they could go all the way, which they didn't, I don't think most people expected them to stay in the race for as long as they did. And to have as many big moments as they did. So I think it was a great diversion. And I I think people really rallied around it. Um, I think people began to think for the first time in a long time that the team would be stable in San Francisco and maybe once again return to to some of the glory um, of the past. So uh, I think the Giants played a big role in in that year. It pretty much got wiped out in November uh, with the Jonestown murders in suicide and with the murders at, at City Hall. But I think that was one, the Giants were one constant, at least for a six months of the year, that kind of brought the city together and, and gave everybody, a, like I said, a diversion from from all the other problems that we've been going through during the decade and, and in the city at that time. Um,
2: thank you. And, and so, so, Mr. Mayor, now, now there's, a, there's a what if that everyone always asks about 1978 which is, what if the assassination hadn't happened? We don't know really the answer to that question. Moscone was preparing to run for re-election. Quentin Kopp was likely going to be the opponent, but we don't know what would have happened in that election. But I want to ask you a different what if, because there was 1978, the year 1978 here in San Francisco began with not a public election, but a legislative election to elect the president of the city council. And Dianne Feinstein, who we've been speaking about a lot, won by a margin of six to five. And uh, the uh, the person to whom who she narrowly defeated, was Gordon Lau. And Gordon Lau had been appointed by Moscone to the Board of Supervisors shortly before uh, the 1977 district elections, but then won on his own right in 1977. And Lau was the more progressive challenger in that, trying to bring together these new members of the board. Not all the new members, of course. What, um, so, so let me ask you that
5: question. What if mm. Gordon Lau wins sure. instead of Dianne Feinstein? Um, but let me, let me start with a, with a little preface about... Uh, I really did think this was a weird book. (laughs) When when he called me, I didn't know who Lincoln Mitchell was, um, and he described what he wanted to do with punk rock, baseball, and politics. I said, God, that's kind of weird. I know politics, and I know uh, a little bit about baseball, but I know nothing about punk rock. And I was trying to sort out what I could contribute uh, that would uh, help Lincoln write this unique book that kind of brought these three uh, desperate uh, subjects together. And um, as I read the book, I started to get it. It took all of it. I mean, I uh, <laughs> I uh, studied hard on this book. I mean, uh, you can see um, – I hadn't done. I haven't done this since college, but I used a highlighter so that I could uh, could really get the idea. And uh, and I think only uh, a Jewish boy born in San Francisco who attended Catholic schools <laughs> and moved to New York could write this book. <laughs> Uh, and all of it is posit- positive and unique. And so that's why I think it's worth reading. Um, and and uh, it caused me to think a lot about this question and related questions. Because uh, even though uh, Louise is a dear friend of mine, um, I used to hide out in her office when I was in the mayor's office, uh, when the hucklety buck and the stress got too much, I'd sneak over to her office and just chat because she was pleasant and smart and uh, uh, I enjoyed her company. Uh, and so uh, it would set off a panic in the mayor's office <laughs> because nobody knew where I was. Her office was right next to mine, so I could slip out the back and slip into her back door and uh, – uh, they would start a citywide search, um, to f- city, city uh, hall-wide search uh, to find me, and I'd be in Louise's office. But I think that this period of time did have a profound effect on the San Francisco we know today. Um, not that Feinstein was a bad mayor, I think she was an outstanding mayor for this that particular time and place. She brought a stability and a uh, certainty to uh, governance that I think the city needed in that time of enormous stress and crisis um, but I think that if there hadn't been an assassination, and, and the first option was the uh, – it, it would have been a different – this would be a different city today. We'd still have the problems that Louise talks about. Uh, they wouldn't have gone away, but I think we would have had a different city governance structure that would have addressed them perhaps differently, uh, if not better. So what do I mean by that? Um, And I think that the election of Gordon Lau, by the way, before I give you that part, how many people are here because they know baseball? Can you just raise your hand? And how many people are here because they know punk rock? Oh, wow. Okay, good. And the rest of you are sort of political? All right. Okay. I'm impressed. Because you may not think this is weird.
0: Uh, well, <laughs> <laughs> um, so
5: uh, Gordon, Lau, Gordon Lau was a progressive, as Lincoln described him. And had he won instead of Feinstein, he would have become president of the board. And if if the assassination had occurred, he would have ascended to be mayor of San Francisco, so we would have had a progressive chinese American mayor for the first time in our history instead of twenty several decades later um, and he would have aggressively pursued the policies of George Moscone. he probably would have been the candidate for reelection instead of Moscone um, against whoever was going to run, if it was Quentin or someone else. And I think that uh, the city was ready for a Chinese-American mayor then, as it was uh, in modern times. And I think he could have well succeeded and continued the progressive policies that George pioneered. And by the way, he was one of my Uh, models when I became mayor, and the the, the most outstanding one I can think of off the top of my head was uh, when George first uh, was elected, he asked for the um, um, uh, resignations of every city commissioner, raised hell over that. And uh, uh, people didn't, uh, the people who were in office didn't like it. But it was his first major move to empower the neighborhoods of San Francisco who felt uh, neglected. And that was one of his major platforms. Um, and he immediately began to bring in neighborhood-oriented people to every important commission, not just the lower-level ones like the Aging Commission or something, but the big powerhouse money commissions, whether it was planning or police or the airport power, all that kind of thing. I did the same thing. I copied George. When I got elected, I asked for the resignation of everyone, caught hell for saying it. But nevertheless, it was an important first step to empower the neighborhoods. And then we uh, created a commission on commissions that uh, evaluated neighborhood people and were uh, selected and recommended to me. And I followed every single one of them. One of the outstanding planning commissioners that came out of that process is right here, Doug Engman who um uh came out of a neighborhood empowerment uh uh commitment so i think that uh had george lived and not been assassinated even more of that would have happened and just think he would have um been probably reelected when he ran in 19 uh let's see 79 70, 79, 79 he was up 90. Seventy nine. He would have had to run for reelection. Seventy nine. Seventy nine. And and so he would have served four years. And then in nineteen eighty three, um, uh, another progressive would have been set up because George was setting in mo- in place the progressive power institutions through commissions that would might give us a prospective candidate or, if I can be modest, which is rare for me, um, I was. I ran in 87. I could have well ran in an 83 and kept his legacy and built on his legacy. And then we would have had at least four years in my case, and who knows, Willie followed—well, actually, Frank followed—beat me, but—, but uh, There were a lineup of progressive politicians emerging at that time that I think would have continued George's legacy. So I think it was a very dramatic difference in uh, having – Uh, Mayor uh, then-Supervisor Feinstein be chosen as president of the board because it set up what we know happened afterwards. And quite frankly, she was more moderate than George or I, Uh, although to her credit, she maintained George's policies for at least uh, the rest of the term that she fulfilled for George, and then she sort of took a more conservative approach. And I'm not talking about she was outstanding on social issues, as Louise said, um, gay rights and those kinds of things. Um, But frankly, what makes you a conservative or a liberal in this city are not social issues. It's land use. It's deciding how we're going to use our land. And therein is the major crisis facing us today, because at least in my progressive opinion, we're using our land For the wrong purposes to build housing for the market rate expensive instead of not only the poor, but the middle class today are seriously threatened because of our land use policies not being strong enough to include housing for middle class people. And what I mean by middle class people, I'm talking about teachers. I'm talking about health professionals. I'm talking about the hospitality industry people. And all the rest of those are a, a, at risk in this city. And when that happens, you're threatening the social, what I call the social infrastructure of a city like San Francisco, when everybody has to commute in to work in these vital jobs that preserve uh, the nature of a city like ours.
0: You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at CommonwealthClub.org. Now back to our program.
2: Thank you. So I think we could do maybe one more round of questions and then do Q&A from the, from the audience. So, Alvin, I want to come back to you. you. Um, Based on what, what Art Agnos just just discussed, how would you see punk rock politics in the late 70s? And how does it fit into this? Seeing from a different perspective, not from an
3: insider, not from City Hall. Um, well, the punk rocks, w- w- there was a division. The, I, would, I have no idea what percentages I would uh, put on these two camps. But I think there was one camp that was very much engaged in civic politics and was very liberal and progressive and voted Democratic. And there was another camp that was just kind of paranoid and cynical and, you know, saw conspiracies everywhere and was not so engaged. And um, I think that for a while, at least, the assassination kind of empowered the cynical people who didn't really want to engage. But I think uh, over time uh, that did it did switch back. And I think punk rockers became very much engaged in in voting and politics and That actually continues to this day. I mean, I live on Valencia Street, up the street from uh, a punk rock record store that's staffed by teenage volunteers, and those kids are all very hooked in. Um, So um, tell me the question again. I think I've lost (laughs) No, but you're kind of halfway. I mean, if if you want to flesh it out more, but just what were – so I think
2: we've heard a little bit from the inside, from City Hall, what the politics look like. What did Uh it look like from your perspective? Um, And and what were the – the driving issues. And why do you think San Francisco punks, now I'm making it a harder question, yeah. were more
3: political than in other towns like LA or New York or Boston or somewhere? Well, I think that the radical traditions here, I mean, most of the punk rockers I knew came from families that had, you know, older brothers or, or sometimes even parents who were uh, hippies or beatniks or red diaper babies of some variety. I mean, there's, there's a lot of that in the Bay area. And, and I think those were the, the children from those families were the ones who were most attracted to punk rock, at least at first. Um, later on, it became more, not mainstream, but it became much more popular. And i um, trying to remember now, it's a long time ago, how much people actually talked about it. Yeah, people talked about, about politics a lot. There was a band, Negative Trend, that had a song, Mercenaries. And why did they sing the song? Because there were actual people recruiting mercenaries uh, from among the bicycle messengers downtown um, to fight. in a, I think it was Angola at the time was where they were trying to pick up people. And so, you know, the punk rock community responded by trying to stop this saying, look, you know, let's educate people, you know, kids who maybe didn't come from backgrounds where they would know not to go to Angola and become mercenaries. And, um, you know, there, there there were issues that on the ground issues that I think were tackled by that, uh, punk rock singers and and people involved with it. Thank you.
2: And so I want to ask you a question, Louise, about, about the board of supervisors Mm -hmm. and the feeling. So, so you came in, you know, to fill the, the, council supervisor seat that was vacated by Feinstein who became mayor and you so you became my supervisor in 1978 and what was the feel in City Hall what was the feel of how do we've had these two tragedies you're coming right after that how do we move the city forward how what was your sense of that how what was the vibe there then
0: well I think everybody was obviously extremely troubled by what had happened and um, there there were efforts really to to work together And remember shortly after that, too, there was a flip between district elections and then citywide elections. You're asking me my preference. I much rather was a preferred being a citywide supervisor because, frankly, the problems of the city weren't in District 2. They were elsewhere. But the rest is history. (laughs) There you go. Here we are. I'm just going to make one comment about the land use policies. I can't speak for Diane because, and she isn't here, and I know she would never take um, shots or say anything bad about the city, but I will say this. I can think of any number of land use decisions made in the intervening years that I do not believe she would have agreed with. And in my opinion, for quite some time now, there has been a complete lack of vision about how you move people and where land use is. For example, if you just take a look coming up the Bay Shore about all that has been planned and been talked about and will go forward, there is no way in earth that you're going to be able to move traffic no matter how much public transit you have or bicycles, etc. There seems to be no connection between moving people and roadways and land use. I also think that there would be much more focus on regional concepts. How long has it been really? Or maybe it's just because I'm out of it, living part time in Napa, and I don't see it. But how much talk has there really been about regionally getting together on housing. You're beginning to see it, but for far too long, in my opinion, it has not been discussed. So these are just, you know, we'll never know. We'll never know. But I think that there have been um, some missteps along the way, and maybe it's because I'm a a friend of, of Diane, a close friend, but I can think of several occasions where she would not have agreed with the decisions made at City Hall.
2: Um, Corey, I'm going to ask you the, the tough and depressing question, so I apologize. <laughs> um, why did the Giants trade Bill Matt? No. Um, <laughs> the, my, my, the question is this. Um, before the assassination, so we, you know, ten days, a fortnight before Jonestown happened, and there's a, a trope, I would say, out there, particularly in the, in the right wing, the conserv- more conservative circles, than than this panel um that says you know this was proof that san francisco had gone crazy jones was tied in with san francisco politicians they should have stopped this I, I don't buy that and if you read the book which i encourage you to do i provide some data to really push back against those assumptions but i wondered if you could speak to that from your perspective and you're you know in city hall at that time and in city politics in the election of 75 of course as well. Yeah.
4: Well, yeah. There, there's always always a lot of 2020 vision looking backwards, yeah. and those of us who, on occasion, uh, met with Jim Jones or was with Jim Jones realized at the time the guy was weird. Uh, <laughs> no, I mean seriously, he was a very strange man. Nonetheless, what was happening with People's Temple at that time? This is before he had fled to to Guyana. Uh, to, uh, to Ghana, was that um, he was feeding a lot of people, he was helping a lot of people, he was taking a lot of people off the streets, he was doing the same kinds of things, maybe in a little different way that Cecil Williams was doing at Glide. There was a lot of that happening, not just in San Francisco, but in other places around the country. <clears throat> and, you know, this sort of right wing BS that somehow or other all these San Francisco politicians should have known where this guy is going. Why didn't the right wing know what Dan White was going to do? Why didn't they see that coming? Um, it, it, it's just, you know, it's just, it, it's silliness. Um, I think there, once he fled, uh, clearly people began to distance themselves from him because they realized there was something else going on here. And this but But, to say that somehow or other, people should have known, and it 's not just politicians it 's not just Democrats, it was Republicans as well. It was the newspapers. Um, uh, Lincoln talks in the book he, he talked about he pushed back against this this notion a little bit, but you know he, he references this this file of testimonials that had been written on behalf of Jim Jones uh, by people across the spectrum. So the idea that somehow this was tied in with crazy left-wing San Francisco to me is is kind of nuts. Um, now, you know, there, there's no question that uh, that event followed immediately or so closely by the murders at, at City Hall of George and Harvey uh, changed the city profoundly. Um, there was a, a long period of time, I think, where the city was just... Sort of in a daze, um, most people. It's a small city. There are a lot of people mm-hmm. in San Francisco who either knew somebody who died in Jonestown, or knew somebody who knew somebody who died in Jonestown. And um, then, then came the murders of George and Harvey, and it just really set this city back on its heels. And I do agree that Diane, when she stepped in at that moment of grief and and uncertainty did a marvelous job of pulling the city together. There's no question about it. She might have been the, the, the best person in the city at the time to fill that role. But um, the differences in the direction the city took from that standpoint, um, I think are stark. And I think that had George and Harvey not been murdered, um, the city today would be very different. There's a clear connection between those events in 1978 and the city of today, I think it 's sad that a lot of people don 't don 't realize and there have been a lot of books written about this, and I think this, I think lincoln 's book really of all the ones i 've read, really cut to this to the core of this better than anybody i, I can 't speak as to why Dan White murdered harvey There's, I, I have some ideas, and I think a lot of people have ideas. But he murdered George. That was a political murder. That wasn't a guy who was just wiped out and tired and ate too many Twinkies. This was a guy who, the moment he resigned, was under tremendous pressure from not only the downtown interests who didn't want to see the Board of Supervisors swing from 6 One Way to 6 5 Moscone, but from the police department and the fire departments. And the fire, the police department <clears throat> particularly was obsessed with this consent decree that Mayor Moscone had negotiated with the federal courts to integrate the San Francisco police and fire departments. And for those of you who are around in the 70s, you know what the police and fire departments looked like in San Francisco at that time. And Moscone was leading this effort. He didn't actually lead it. There was a group called the Officers for Justice who had filed a lawsuit. But when George became mayor, he got involved in negotiating this agreement with the federal court that would integrate the police and fire departments in San Francisco with, with women, with people of color, with people from the LGBT community, uh, and make the department a very, very different department than it was. And the entrenched interests in the San Francisco Police Department, and to an extent the fire department, were all over Dan White. He'd been a former cop. He'd been a former firefighter. And they said, you're letting us down. You can't do this to it. They're going to let Moscone destroy our department if if this goes through. And that was what pushed him over the edge. And that's why the days after the murders, there were cops wearing T-shirts that said, Free Dan White. So the notion that the guy ate too much sugar um, or, or something is nuts. It was a political murder. Uh, it didn't serve its purpose in terms of the consent decree. Um, fortunately, that went forward, and if you take a look at the police and fire departments today, they bear very little resemblance to the police and fire departments in San Francisco in 1978. Um, but beyond that, uh, there, were, there were tremendous changes that occurred because of, um,
2: because of the, the murders. So a number of the characters central to this book, but, but fewer than you would think. Dianne Feinstein... Uh, George Moscone and Dan White were all born and raised in this town. I was actually born in New York, moved out here as very young, so I'm a Jewish boy from New York and moved to San Francisco to attend Catholic school. <laughs> the same one as <laughs> Diane Feinstein. Anyway, but a number of people moved here. Harvey Milk, Jella Biafra, Vita Blue, um, and and a guy who was Jim Jones. Jim Jones. And a guy who was in the State Assembly at the time, Art Agnes. So I want to talk to you about that experience coming yep. here in 1971, yeah. why, what the politics were.
5: Yeah. Um, and, and if you think about the names he just uh, – that he just enumerated, Jim Jones, uh, Harvey Milk. Who's the other one? Vita Blue. Vita Blue. Jello Biafra. And I mean, and Art Agnos. What a – disparate <laughs> <one>. <laughs> Yet there was one common thing that brought us all here, and that's – San Francisco values, San Francisco values of acceptance, of tolerance, of letting people come here from different parts of the country, uh, indeed different parts of the world, and be accepted for who they are and who they want to be. One of the things I say in my speeches is that this city gave me a chance to come here in 1966 and be who I wanted to be with whom I wanted to be it with, as long as it didn't interfere with someone else's right to do the same thing. And so when I came here, no one asked me, as they do so often in the East Coast, uh, where'd you go to school? What do your parents do? Uh, and, and you get judged by a profile that you may not have anything to do with, but you it. When you come to San Francisco, nobody asks you that. They ask you, who are you? What do you do? How do you want to fit into our community? And let's see how we can get about it together. And I think that's what attracted Harvey Milk. I think that's what attracted Jim Jones. He could have went to a number of places. He wasn't here to start. He went north of San Francisco in uh, – was it Guerneville? Ukiah, I think. Ukiah. Yeah, Ukiah, right. And, 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 uh, but he was close enough to San Francisco to understand – what this place was like, and he came here. He knew what he was doing exactly, and he went, as Corey said, um, started working and doing good things that immediately won the attention and support of important people in San Francisco because it was good work. And so the values of this city uh, did not change under any politician. They were enhanced after uh, Mayor Feinstein took over and everyone who followed her, I think, continued that tradition of San Francisco values, which are often criticized around around uh, the country politically, but uh, eventually they adopt the same ones. Um, and so we that. are always on the cutting edge of teaching some of these values that are important to us, to the rest of the country, uh, in a way that makes a difference there as well as here. So I think that Those two major figures in this uh, era we're talking about and this book uh, came here because of San Francisco values, which are very special and extraordinary. We have a little bit of time for some Q&A from the
2: the floor. So
1: So I'd like to remind everyone uh, on the online and and, uh, radio uh, versions of this that they're listening to a panel discussion about the year 1978 – uh, based on the book that was written by Lincoln Mitchell.
6: Thanks, everybody. I'm um, inspired by hearing you today. I, as a, somebody who was a freshman in high school here in 1978, um, I can tell you that that year and that era had a profound impact on my life. Um, not just the assassinations in Jonestown, but uh, Prop Six and you know the Giants and the Forty ers and and other things. Um, and for, I for one am proud to own San Francisco values and represent those in the community. And I'm proud that here with us tonight, today, and, and elsewhere are people who've spent their lives doing that. And I think that, that makes me proud to be a San Franciscan. Um, I think my – I guess my question is if if we had a, everybody raise their hand here, how many people were here in 1978, San Francisco? I think this is a, a very atypical group in that that many people were here. Most people have come here for some, from somewhere else and don't have that institutional or values-based history here. And so if you could give those people some advice, one lesson learned or one thing that they should carry forward from 1978 to now to inform – decision making, whether it's land use or, or, or values, what would that what would that be? What were the lessons that endure for you uh, since nineteen seventy eight? For me the
4: lesson, and it's probably for me the lesson because it's so apropos today, is that no matter how bad things look no, seriously, no matter no matter what yeah. kind of unspeakable horrors we go through, you can't come out the other side. Now, we came out the other side different politically, and the city moved in a slightly different direction. But we survived. And we came through, and San Francisco is today still one of the greatest cities in the world. It's got a lot of problems, but it's still a great city. Um, and I guess that's apropos today anyway, at least from my viewpoint, as I look at where we stand as a country and the... And the, the fears that many of us have and that is to just hold tight to the notion that we've been through a lot as a country we've been through a lot as a city and um, we've come through it so hopefully we'll continue that uh, but I, I i would take that it, it, those
7: were dark days but we emerged i really uh appreciate all of your coming and uh and sharing all those wonderful perspectives about 1978 Uh, I'm a native of San Francisco, and uh, very proud of it, and recently uh, had the great fortune to be able to move back into the city. Um, A couple of weeks ago, uh, my wife and I decided to take a visit to where I grew up, and we stopped at the apartment that my parents rented in 1955 in Park Merced for $90 a month. (laughs) And we were able to to live in San Francisco even on the salary that my dad made as a school teacher over at in Daly City. We met the current tenant of that apartment who told us she was renting that place for $3600 a month. I work here in the financial district. We have secretaries that commute from Fairfield, Vacaville, and Manteca, these insane commutes that are really soul crushing, and yet they come here because they have good jobs and they want to contribute to the to the city. I, uh, uh, what uh, Mr. Mayor and Louise, what you said about what's happening to our city, the inability to house people, the uh, amount of of traffic that we have in the in the city, that that really resonated with me, and I would. I would like to know what you think about, for example, um, the uh, uh, proposals by people like, like Scott Weiner uh, to increase housing. Uh, is that the answer? And what can we do to make this a place so that we can have that kind of sustainable community where our workforce can live here—our teachers and our hospital workers and our our our, uh, our office <clears throat> support people? How? Can, can that re, be done so that people like me, who are children of school teachers and the like, can grow up in San Francisco?
2: Maybe I can just briefly answer before we turn it over to, to the others. Because I, I, I don't live here anymore, but I hear this a lot because I listen to like the Commonwealth Club and other podcasts about San Francisco. And I hear that question a lot. I don't have the answer because if I did, I would tell you. But there are something I think we should think about. One is to go back to 1978, George Moscone spent the last months or so of his mayoralty, at least according to the documents that I read, trying to figure out what to do about Proposition 13. And one thing we should do is to think, and, and I read articles in the Chronicle where someone, I hear this, from, I'm sure you, who, those who live here, your friend goes to Europe and comes back and said, oh, I was in Madrid and there's no homeless people, whatever it is, right? We have a policy, the official government in this policy in this country beginning in 1981 is that cities are bad and we don't care about them, Right. And you and I think if you say, why is there a homeless problem in San Francisco? Why is housing so expensive? Why is there n- not proper infrastructure for public transportation, which would relieve the traffic? You have to begin with the war on big cities that began under Ronald Reagan. And if you don't do that, you're being intellectually dishonest. And Proposition 13 was the forerunner of that. So you have to put it in that context before you say it's London Breed or Art Agnos or Dianne Feinstein's
4: fault. Uh, let's say one more thing about Prop 13. Moscone was opposed to Prop 13 because the result of 13 was to take the power away from the local communities. It made the local communities dependent upon the state and federal government. And so when problems like homelessness and others came along, uh, housing, we didn't have the ability, no city had the ability any longer to make those kinds of important decisions because we didn't have the money. The money all went... To the, to the feds and to the state so it was the loss of local control uh, which feeds in is very much an important mm-hmm. part of,
5: of what you were saying Lincoln. the um, my answer to your to your question is uh, I think that uh, Senator Weiner's bill is misguided I don't think we need to uh, add more density in neighborhoods where there are single-family homes, and just because there's a bus stop there, we're going to build up 10 stories or whatever. I think the most important question facing this city today is this one. How big do we want to be? This city must – and if I were mayor today, I would be leading a citywide conversation. And I'm not running for anything. That's why I'm not running a, wearing a tie. Um, I'm not running for anything either. <laughs> but we need to decide how big – We want this city to be because we're surrounded by water on three sides and Daly City on the south. So the only way we can grow is up. So the question is, how many ups do we want to build in this city today? Right now, we're about 850,000 people. We're on a a course to be 1.3 or 4. The planning department tells us with what's in the pipeline today, we're going to be uh, somewhere around 1.3, 1.4 million people. So how many more do we want? Two million, two and a half, three, and therefore, and for whom is the second question. Who do we build for? Because today, the market forces are building for one population, and that is wealthy people because they will pay the prices that expensive condos that are popping up all over San Francisco uh, require. Uh, so, we need to say, "How big do we want to be, and the people of this city must decide that and then secondly, they need to decide who are we going to insist through our govern- governance, our regulatory bodies, like planning, etc, for whom are we going to build? We argue about should it be fifteen to twenty five or twenty eight or thirty percent for uh, affordable housing, which really means low-income and middle-class people. And more today than ever, middle-class people can't buy in this city. Your father could not buy that house or that apartment that you rented. Uh, teachers today make about sixty-five to $70,000 a year to start in this city. The United States Department of Housing and Urban Development last year said that if you make, as a single person, $92,000 a year in this city, you are officially low-income. Low-income. So our middle-class professional people, like teachers or nurses or the hospital techs or in the hospitality industry, all the people who serve us, are officially low income, according to the federal government, and we aren't doing anything to build the kind of structures that they can afford to live. And so this city has to make that fundamental decision. And frankly, a radical one would be to say we're not going to allow any more housing for wealthy people. We're going to build just for the middle class and low income. As um, usual,
0: I agree with Mayor Agnos. <laughs> Uh, I, would, I would just add even a bit more, Mr. Mayor. First of all, just by way of background, I wrote the rent control ordinance back when I was on the Board of Supervisors, but that's it. Uh, I think more than that, Mr. Mayor, I'm not going to have any friends left by the time this panel is over because <laughs> I don't think there's been a planning decision made in the last 10 years that I'm in agreement with that I've been interested in. But that said, I think not only do we need to have a conversation about residency, but how much more commercial growth we want to allow because it is with the huge commercial growth that you get this huge commuting. I mean, when I come down from Napa, I take the ferry boat, and there are people from Sacramento on that ferry boat coming in, to San Francisco for their jobs. And that's why, frankly, I don't think we're going to get out of this. I believe in local control, absolutely. But I don't think we're going to get out of this till we start having a much stronger regional conversation a regional conversation that is not limited to transportation and maybe a very different metropolitan transportation agency while we're at it, (laughs) but uh, also uh, a combination of linking planning and transportation together because that's all tied with who's going to live where. I have some ideas for teacher housing in San Francisco, by the way, which I've shared with the school district. We'll see if they go for it. But anyhow, I think, Mayor, you're right about uh, we have to have a deeper conversation. And different people at the table. I reiterate, where are our neighborhood groups? Where are people who are affected? I mean, most people are so tired that have to commute such – Long ways, they don't have time to spend at a planning commission, and that's a shame. And how about less developers' money while we're at it in politics?
1: We have time for one more question.
8: Uh, Sue Hester and Calvin Welch are still around. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I know, but um, we need the more active Doug. <laughs> um,
8: there'll be a couple of propositions on the ballot to, to deal with that. Good. Uh, I, I had a theory. I want to ask a question about 1978, and that is, did the tragedies that occurred to uh, Moscone and Harvey actually strengthen the progressive movement and actually strengthen the gay movement in terms of their willingness to mobilize and fight, as opposed to the other theory that if, say, Gordon had been there or if George had been there, life would have been a lot easier? I was in the middle of all of that, uh, particularly on the neighborhood political side. But, but there, was a, there was a huge determination, at least among the progressive neighborhoods, that it wasn't going to be easy. Now, Diane made it easier in a sense that she did continue the politics and she did ingrain into city politics the fact that neighborhood leaders should be serving uh, on commissions. The Harvey Milk – in my view, the Harvey Milk decision – really strengthen the entire gay movement in terms of their determination not to ever let that happen again. Curious as to what your, Art and Corey, you know, what your, what your thoughts are on that.
4: Well, I don't think there's any question um, that uh, Harvey's death coalesced the gay community with a purpose and now a leader, a national leader. Um, and I, I, think, I think the gay community is to be commended for, for knowing how to come together around that tragedy and build something positive of it. Um, and it, it happened here, and it grew around the country, and I think the proof is in the pudding today. The other side of that is exactly what uh, Louise was saying before. You know, where are the Sue Biermans and the Sue Hesters and the Calvin Welts and those, and those people?
0: The younger versions. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah,
4: yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, look... One of, the, one of George's legacies was the fact that he opened up the, the doors of City Hall and yep. to govern them um, to the people of San Francisco. And you can never go back, and that still exists to an ex- to a great extent today. But I think, frankly, that his murder um, cut the, the heart out of the progressive movement for a while. And I don't know that it's ever quite come back. I don't see the kind of community effective community activism and community leadership fighting for the neighborhoods um, today that existed then.
0: The only exception to that rule recently has been the 8 Washington. The, Mr. Mayor and I were involved. Yeah. The 8 Washington movement really galvanized neighborhood. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it galvanized people to stop, you know, no wall on the waterfront. But there hasn't been anything like that there wasn't much of anything like that before then, and there hasn't been, to my knowledge, anything like that since then. But no wall on the waterfront really galvanized people like, you know, don't build the freeway uh, along Golden Gate Park did years ago, and the kinds of buildings that, and Sue was very involved in the no wall on the waterfront, but We haven't. I I just don't see that anymore. Otherwise, you wouldn't have today, you certainly wouldn't have all of the high rises. And I don't think, whatever your view about the SOMA plan is, I don't think you'd have something like the SOMA plan today if you really had strong citywide neighborhood agreements. I mean... Maybe some people in SOMA agreed to it because they wanted the housing or some of the other little goodies, not nearly enough for the intrusion and change that, in my opinion, that plan is going to bring. Other than that, I don't have strong thoughts. Yeah. <laughs>
5: I, I, I agree. I think that uh, with both, with both uh, Louise and Corey, in that uh, I think that the loss of Moscone depressed The neighborhood movement for up until late Washington, which uh, Louise correctly points out, was a new uh, uh, the most recent catalyst. But between what is that twenty five? How many years is that? Whatever, though, it was depressed, and and we have not seen young people following in the footsteps of the now aging leaders. Um, and I'm not quite sure why that's the case, except I think that young people now are so um, uh, engaged in trying to survive in this city uh, that they don't have time uh, for neighborhood engagement. And and somehow I hope we can turn that around. But uh, we are seeing signs of it, but it's all run by Seniors, frankly, we're going to have Prop M2 next year. Everybody's over 50 in that one. And uh, some, huh? (laughs) So I think we need to do something about engaging young people. And I think this book um, offers us some lessons in that regard. I would just add one, one thing about, to
2: your question from a different perspective, which is you go back to the 1975 and 1977 mayoral elections, right? John Barbagelotta is running as a West Coast version of Frank Rizzo, or, or later Rudy Giuliani. Yes. Dan White, uh, John, John Barbagelotta, for those who don't know, is the man who very narrowly lost to George Moscone in 1975 in the mayoral race. Dan White, when he ran for supervisor, he uses language Language such as, we need to eradicate malignancies that blight our city. Barbara Jada almost got elected, and Dan White did. When Dan White killed George Moscone and Harvey Milk, particularly given the timing of that, the city, it was a moment of, it was a terrible moment for the city and a terrible time, but I think on some level it was a, it was a, a moment of reflection. Earlier that month, as I n- noted earlier, Proposition 6 had been defeated statewide, but badly defeated in San Francisco. The... The policies on tolerance – San Francisco was growing into the tolerance that it has become by, by late 1978. And I think what Feinstein did was she institutionalized we're not going back to that kind of hateful electoral politics. Mm-hmm. That is a losing strategy in, in San Francisco. The, you know, and, 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 and my sense is that if you think Frank Jordan is comparable to Frank Rizzo or Rudy Giuliani or John Barbagelotti, you're wrong. Right. He wasn't, and he, right. and he isn't. So that, that, that we are not going to survive if we continue to do this this way, that came out of, of, of the assassinations in Michael.
1: Yep. Thank you very much. That was a great look. Thank you for all coming. Here.
0: Nice being with you. Nice being with you. Yeah. yeah. Good.
1: It's a sign of the times that anyone under 50 is called young. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Uh, so thank you all very much for coming. Uh, it's uh, another great <laughs> oh, event. at yeah, the Commonwealth Club, and it's 117th year of enlightened <laughs> discussion. <laughs>
8: uh, uh, well, well, we'll see. But the, uh, but.